Well, hello there and happy new year. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you're listening to episode 237 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, in honor of Veganuary or Vegan January, we are discussing what the world could look like, and more specifically, how everything could improve, our economy, our culture, our health, and the health of our planet, how everything would improve if the majority of humans on planet Earth moved to a plant-based lifestyle. So if you are participating in Vegan January, Veganuary this year, and you need a little bit of motivation, or maybe perhaps you've never even heard of Veganuary before and you're like, what the heck is Stephanie talking about? This episode's for you. Today I'm speaking with acclaimed author and anthropologist Rowan Van Voorst about her new book titled Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. Rowan argues that veganism is the fastest growing social movement in the world. And when we look back on our meat eating days in the future, humans will wonder what on earth were we thinking? So we're going to get into my discussion with Rowan after a quick word from this week's first sponsor. Rowan, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for logging on in the evening in the Netherlands. Walk us through your decision to become a vegan. When did it happen? What tipped the scales in the plant-based favors? Give us all that information. I did not want to become a vegan. I was completely against vegans, actually. I had been a vegetarian since I was 16. I'm 38 now. And about five years ago, I started to do research on the future of food. So I have a double background. I'm an anthropologist and I'm a futurist. Uh, So I've always been interested in sketching future scenarios and then thinking through what might this mean for society and for individuals. And back then, I remember myself sitting in a cafe in Philadelphia. I was actually living in the US back then. And I was reading in the newspaper something about cow's milk and how cows were slaughtered if they were males because we don't really need them for the milk industry. And I looked at my cappuccino. I was still drinking cow's milk back then. I'm like, why am I a vegetarian? Well, because I didn't want animals to be killed for my taste. But then am I now indirectly paying for these animals to be slaughtered while they're still young? And and I, I simply didn't understand. And so first my personal research started and then my more professional research started because I became fascinated. But before that, I had always kind of looked down on vegans. That's really harsh to say, but it was like I was associating them with the pale kind of slow people in the bio shops in the Netherlands, the non-very fashionable ones, the ones that had beards right before they became trendy, right? And so I thought they are over the top. I, you know, I could go with, I don't want animals to be killed. I was never a big meat eater anyhow. And so that was easy for me when I was a teenager, but becoming vegan, that sounded just a bit radical. And then I started reading and reading and I started to visit farmers and livestock um, holders and I heard their stories. And after five years or so, I knew so much that I really couldn't go back. Knowledge is power or so they say. Yeah. And it's really annoying because then you you don't eat with the same joy you did before. I just kept looking at my plate and be like, hmm, I'm now you know, contributing to a system that I don't like. 
And so I have a role to play here. And that made me at some point turn vegan. Well, in your book, right in the introduction, you argue that we are amidst a radical change in the way humans on this planet eat. You argue that the next generation will see unnecessary animal suffering as a thing of the past and that exploiting animals will be looked down upon, kind of like smoking, right? Like smoking was very cool in decades past. And now, at least in America, I know it's different in perhaps your corner of the world, but smoking is pretty much looked down upon. What evidence are you looking at to make this argument? Well, you know, it's always hard. And I agree with you. It's the same in Europe, actually. I thought uh, smoking was actually a great parallel because there, too, there has been a knowledge transformation where people understood much more than in the 50s of the last century, like, oh, this is not good for my health. This is actually really destructive. But at the same time, there was also a cultural shift where, like you say, there was the cool Marlboro guy, the sexy cowboy man. And then nowadays, you would associate it perhaps more with even lower social economic classes, right? So it's really a different way of looking at the same habit. And with eating meat or eating fish or eating um, dairy, I really see that there's a trend going towards more flexitarianism, and that is what the statistics show as well, but also more people who really find it a taboo almost to eat it. Now, I never say, and I never claim in my book that this will be the whole world, um, because I do think that there are countries where it's really hard to find a vegan burger, right? Or where it's really hard to find alternatives. I mean, I've lived amongst the Inuit in Greenland for a while for my uh, anthropological fieldwork, and there people cannot eat anything else than the animals that they have there. So what I did for the book was I really looked into statistics, uh, and I tried to look at what the youngsters are doing. And I'm noticing both in these numbers and in the interviews that I've been doing, that many of these youngsters really look differently to eating meat. For them, it's much more normal to eat at least at least. Um, vegetarian a couple of days a week, or they just kind of like the vegan chicken nuggets in the supermarket better because they've been born and raised with them. Or what happens also often is that they are really concerned about the climate. And for them, they all are taught nowadays in schools, like there's a direct correlation between the climate changes and the way in which we massively eat and keep animals. And so when I look at those children then it makes sense what I'm reading in the literature as well, that the vegan movement is one of the fastest growing social movements in the world. Hmm. I just want to go back around to your comment there on children who prefer vegan chicken nuggets, not even chicken, vegan nuggets, let's say, as opposed to the chicken ones, because that really made me stop and pause for a minute. I have two young daughters and Making the decisions on what to feed them every night is less about what to put on their plate night by night, but more about creating a culture in our household and creating a foundation in which eating the vegan nuggets are commonplace, standard, and just what we do in this house. So it's not just about dinner. It's about showing them they can appreciate the plant-based options on the market as a parent, I am, by what I put in front of them, I am creating those ideals, fostering those ideals in them, and 
by consequence in the next generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we all grew up with like, I have favorite dishes uh, which involve animal protein, like uh, the chicken soup of my mom when I was sick, right? And I can still kind of remember that and then become melancholic. And then it's hard to think like, can I never have that again? But if you were born and raised with a different standard, if the norm was different, if you're only used to having vegan cheese instead of the real cheese, I'm not saying everybody should do this, but just imagine how that would be. Then of course, you're not going to miss something that you haven't known. I'm wondering though, what do you say? Like I hear people in my life say, but meat just tastes good all the time. What do you say to people who continue to eat meat and dairy because it tastes good? Well, first of all, I think they're right that it tastes good. Um, I think often vegans tend to say like, oh, there's, it's, it's really easy. You don't have to give up anything. So for me, for example, I was not the biggest fan of meat. So that was an easy step to pull away from. But I have to admit that most of the vegan cheeses, they're just not the same as actual cow's cheese. They're just not, you know, some of them, the the most horrible taste like plastic, got to be honest here. And then the best are pretty good. Uh, they're still not exactly cheese, but they're really nice to have with um, a piece of bread. But so I think, first of all, we have to be, brave and honest and say, yes, you are giving up things, but it's pretty urgent what is going on. A lot of us are so concerned about the climate. There have been studies from Oxford University that show so clearly that the emissions from the meat industry are ginormous. And every time that you decide to not eat meat, but instead eat plant-based, even the things that we consider as the worst plant-based things you can eat, like avocado, it still has much less emissions than the best thing you could eat in meat, namely chicken, for example. So I think that sense of guilt, a lot of people have that or concern, especially if you look at your children or at the nephews um, of your sister, you know, it, it really is concerning what kind of world will they grow up in. So for people who say, I just want to keep eating it because I like it so much. First of all, I feel you. I think the taste is legit. It is really good. But is that the most important thing in life, that you have a really nice taste experience? Or could it be a tiny bit less? Because a lot of the plant-based food that I've learned to cook and eat is extraordinarily good as well. It's something different, but it's also really good. And you can get used to that. It mostly takes a couple of weeks, you know, just try out new things. And then you find out your new golden spots. So I think that sense of guilt or concern that we now have, getting rid of that, that itself gives a feeling that I find to be better even than the best steak one could possibly have. You talk about in Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, how everything essentially would improve if we all adopted, or most of us adopted, a plant-based diet, the economy, our individual health, the climate, our culture. And I've talked about the health benefits of plant-based on the podcast before. I've talked about the environmental benefits of plant-based before. But I'd love to talk to you about how exactly the worldwide economy and culture would improve if the majority of humans on this earth adopted a plant-based diet. How? How? <laughs> Yeah, 
I think for the economy, first of all, it's merely about the people in the economy. If you look at the people working in the slaughterhouses who are extremely underpaid, where the turnover rate is 100% because people get traumatized, they get sick, that is an industry that is so far out of our reach, but it's really problematic and toxic. I also like to look at the economy and see we're going into a next generation, right? The kids that now prefer to go vegetarian because they say, I really love animals or I'm concerned about the climate. Those are the kids that have the wallets and the money in 10 years from now. So they're going to be deciding. And then if you look at all the opportunities there are in plant-based foods, there's a reason why so many companies now transform um, to plant-based milk, for example, or they go and invest, like some of the biggest meat companies are now investing in plant-based alternatives. It's because they see it's lucrative. And regarding the culture, there is a beautiful saying by a philosopher. He or she said, you cannot have two hearts, one for animals and one for humans. And I kind of think that that is true. In my book, I try to really understand myself as well, right? I try to understand why so many good people, because you and I and everybody listening, we're nice people. We're not slaughtering crazy people. But at the same time, if you look at your plate, we're contributing to a system that is really unkind. And so I wanted to understand that, what what happens in our brains and in our culture that has us do that. There's something in us that goes away from such uncomfortable feelings and back into either the belief or the myth, I should say, this is natural for human beings, this is normal, we needed all of those myths that are counterposed by scientists, but we still kind of keep them. And then also, I guess, just the fact that everything is so abstract, the thing that you buy in the supermarket doesn't even look like an animal. And I've never seen a slaughterhouse nearby a um, city, right? They're all in the suburbs. Many of us, if we really, if we really allow the numbers and uh, realistic scenarios to enter our hearts and minds, we don't want to be that person that contributes. But at the same time, we we don't see a way out, and we're also a bit too lazy. I mean, myself included, because it is really comfy to stick to the chicken soup of your mom. And there's the abstractness. But if you think about what if we would be really proud that at least we're trying for the next generation or we say, I don't want to do this anymore. It just doesn't feel good. You can imagine that that becomes a little bit of a softer culture almost, right? Yes. Your response there really speaks to me. And you mentioned the myths that we hear you know, eating meat is the natural way of things, eating meat is healthy. I would actually take the word myth and I would change that to marketing. We are marketed to believe that the meat is the healthy choice, the natural choice. So I want to talk to you about the daily ways that we can each incrementally go plant-based. So I want to get down and dirty into like, what does this look like? How can we do this in real life? We're going to get into all that after a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. 
You need EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense. It's a three-in-one capsule that supports your digestive health and promotes gut barrier protection. I started taking EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense because I have a bloating problem, friends. Yes, I do. Inflammation is not my friend. Since taking one capsule a day on an empty stomach with water, I have noticed more energy, improved skin, and here's the big one, reduced bloating. Head to myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and so much more. That's myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. And we are back with Roanne Van Voorst. She is the author of the new book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. Roanne, I want to talk to you about, okay, how does plant-based eating look in real life? And I ask this as somebody who's attempted a vegan lifestyle twice and failed twice. I would say that... What works really well for me is when I'm planning out my meals, when I don't allow myself to get hangry. (laughs) When I get hangry, everything's off the table. What tripped me up the first time, I I went eight months, and I felt really good about my eight months, but what tripped me up was just a nondescript dinner party. I went to somebody's house. I didn't want to be rude, and in came... I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't a vegan thing that I ate. So what challenges did you face in your first weeks and months going vegan? And how would you suggest that listeners who are interested in a vegan lifestyle, how would you suggest they prepare themselves for those challenges? Yeah, so let's go into the challenges first. (laughs) So at first, my first problem was that I never wanted to be a vegan because I thought they were all activists, right? So there was kind of an identity crisis going on there. And so I remember myself in the beginning, I never introduced myself as being a vegan. I would say like, oh, no, I or I would use the word plant-based because that seemed less activistic. So I was a bit socially awkward there. And then what happened to you as well, I felt such a burden for people who I would visit to have a dinner with. With. I felt horrible to have to ask them like, oh, can you cook everything plant-based? Because I assumed that would be really hard and unknown for people. So that was my big problem in the beginning, which got myself into troubles because then I would sit there being unhappy and then either I would eat what they had prepared or I would kind of, you know, stick around it with my fork and have a binge on vegan bars or whatever afterwards because I was freaking hungry. I also really discovered in myself a social fear, a fear to take up space, a fear to say, perhaps to be a bit normative, to say, like, I have reasons I don't want to contribute to the misabuse of animals, which which is my main reason. And then I just started practicing. I do now, if I go and have dinner with people, I do announce beforehand, I say, well, I eat plant-based, so shall I cook? Shall I bring something? And then sometimes I cook and what I do, this is my biggest trick for if you have friends over that aren't vegan, do not mention it is vegan. 
that's what vegans always do. They go like, and this is vegan. Can you believe it? Can you taste the difference? Well, I can guarantee you, if you say that, a lot of the people will be very critical about everything they taste. So instead, I just make a freaking good plant-based dinner. I say nothing about it. People have a wonderful meal. And then they'll ask me like, what was this, by the way? And I will say it's seitan and it's, it tastes like meat, but it's it's... It's different, right? And then sometimes they ask me for the recipe and that's a little win. I would say the first thing for people who want to try and eat perhaps a little bit more plant-based is start small. You know, I have so many still meat eating friends who already transformed completely to oat milk because they just like it better per taste or because they trained themselves in a week or so to get used to the taste. I think sometimes you have to try a little. I, I personally do not like soy milk in my coffee, for example, but I do like oat milk. Um, when I discovered that it became a lot easier. So you have to kind of start small. First, the milk, you transform them, then perhaps the yogurt, then you start um, trying out some of the uh, plant-based meats that are available. And once you found your things that you and your family like, it becomes easier to stick to those. So that's one of my tips. Another is if you have a situation in which for one time, you know, you went back to the old habits, don't blame yourself. You were born and raised in a meat-eating culture. It's not your fault. It's just a new kind of way of thinking and living. So I, I would say if that happens, it has happened to me when I was traveling and I was somewhere, wasn't prepared, there was nothing available. And then, of course, I, I need to be healthy as well. And then so I enjoy it. Sometimes when I do field work, um, like I said, I'm an anthropologist, so I work with really poor people. If they offer me something and they have no alternative, I'm not going to reject that. I'll, I'll just be grateful. The experiment hasn't stopped you can just go back like, oh, okay, so I made a sidestep back to my old habits, but now I'll continue. And I guess a third thing is you really have to learn to cook in a different way, which sounds more terrifying than it is. But I think a, a big mistake that a lot of people make is that they keep on cooking exactly the same recipes as they used to, but now they leave out the meat. So you'll have like the potatoes, the vegetables and the chicken, but without the chicken. Now, that is a very boring dinner, and it's also not very healthy. It really helps to buy a um, comfort food-style vegan cookbook. There's lots of them. You know, there's also vegan cookbooks who only do salads, but nobody likes that. So just a really comfort food-style vegan cookbook with dishes that really speak to you. But you'll have to kind of get into it. And then after a few weeks, it will feel more natural. But But don't keep cooking as you used to. Something you said there really, really struck me. You said, you know, when you're going to a dinner party, you do make it known that you eat plant-based meals. I think there's something to be said for being loud and proud with your dietary habits. Same for living sober, right? There's something to be said for just putting it out there, being loud, proud, and bold about it, instead of keeping it to yourself and just hoping, crossing your fingers that everybody will just know without you ever saying anything. One more question for you, something that trips me up, is going out to restaurants. A lot of restaurants these days have a vegan option or the ability to take a vegetarian dish and make it vegan. However, 
not all restaurants, at least not all restaurants by me, maybe like half of the restaurants. What steps do you go through before going to a restaurant? Do you check the menu? Do you only have, you know, three or four that you frequent? Talk to me about all the routines surrounding going to a restaurant. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I live in Amsterdam where it's pretty easy because most of the restaurants have at least one, mostly 10, you know, vegan options, or they have really good and friendly cooks who are excited to make something plant-based because it's also very fashionable nowadays, right? Let's not forget that. It's for a lot of chefs, it's really what they kind of serve as their pride. Like they'll have amazing dishes. What I do if I'm not really sure about the restaurants is I do mention it beforehand when I make the reservations. I'll just tell them one of us is vegan. And I've actually never had a problem unless the restaurant is purely French, for example, and then still they can do it. But then if you would order a preset five course meal with a full table of people and none of the other people are vegan, but I am, it might become a little bit hard for them because they want to serve us all the same thing. And then I cannot join that. But people also make it much harder than it is. I mean, pasta with wonderful tomato sauce is vegan. You know, all the Indian kitchen uh, dishes can be made really easily vegan. The same with other Southeast Asian dishes, for example. A little bit of bread with tapenade in, in, instead of butter, even if there's really good plant-based butter nowadays, it's vegan, you know? So it doesn't have to be that complicated. When I am in a situation where there's really nothing available, which I've had, I still ask about it because I do believe that when the question raises, when there's more request for vegan meals, it's really giving a sign to chefs and to restaurant holders that there is a shift going on, that something is changing. It is like, I sometimes say it's like political voting. Like you really show, also if you do that in shops, if you buy the vegan burger and not the regular burger, then you show that there's more that there's more demand for the vegan uh, products. And then the owner of the supermarket will see that in his numbers. And before you know, he will buy in more of that stuff. And that's how it works with restaurants as well. So I've had the opportunity to come back to restaurants that before had nothing vegan on the menu. They would make it especially for me. And then two years later, I come back and they have like four dishes. And that's probably because I asked. So they become aware like, oh, there's actually an audience that wants this. And other people might have asked as well. So I always recommend people just ask, just mention it. You don't have to be an asshole about it, but you can ask, hey, can you make something vegan or is there something vegan on the menu? And if you prepare restaurants, then it's easier for them. Hmm. I like what you said there about conscious consumerism, right? I talk about conscious consumerism a lot on this show with regard to stuff, what we buy, but you're bringing up conscious consumption quite literally. <laughs> what we consume can and does inform the market that we want to see more of the plant-based options on the market. So I really love that quite literal connection there. Rowan, tell us where my listeners can find your new book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. You can buy it in all the bookshops and you can buy it online already. Uh, and people can find me on my website, rowanvanvorst.com or on Instagram at rowanvanvorst. Well, I will link to your book and your website and your Instagram in this week's show notes. But I just want to say to you personally, thank you so much for coming on, 
sharing your insight. And the takeaway that I received from our conversation was that plant-based, that transition is happening right now. It is the way of the future. And so I personally can either get on, hop on the train, or be left behind. That's my personal takeaway. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you much success with the launch of your new book. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I so hope you enjoyed my chat with Roanne Van Voorst. I've linked to her new book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, in this week's show notes, as well as some Veganuary resources if you are interested in joining the January Challenge. Now, it is a new year. What better time to support the shows you love, like this one and like all the other ones you listen to each and every week, by leaving them a quick review. Indie podcasters like me, indie podcaster means somebody who's not affiliated with a network. Indie podcasters like me really greatly, truly rely on and read and appreciate every single Apple Podcast review that you leave. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, maybe today is the day you leave the show an honest review. Thank you so much. If you listen on Spotify, you can now leave reviews on Spotify as well, or ratings, I should say, not reviews, but ratings on Spotify. And while you're at it, be sure to rate and review all of your other favorite shows. Keep the podcast love going. I will see you on Thursday for another episode. See you then, and take care. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.